what jumped out in that song at me just then was where it says, my one defense. Think about if you've ever been involved in or witnessed or seen on TV a trial and the defense makes its case and it lists all these different reasons to why they should get off and hoping that they will sway the jury or the judge or whatever. And every one of us have so many things against us, so many accusations, so many ways that we failed, that we messed up, that we sinned. And we don't have to make this big case as to why we are right with God. If we were on trial, I would say I've got one defense. It's Jesus. Enough said. Just walk up to the judge and go, Jesus, that's all I got. And he says, pardoned, you're free. <laughs> Man, that is incredible. All right. Well, this morning we're back in our Roman series again after taking a break from it last week. So take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9. Y'all may have just assumed that we were done with chapter 9. Some of you probably even hoping that we were done with chapter 9, but we're not. When we looked at it two weeks ago, we stopped with verse 23, so today we're going to look at the rest of it. But don't worry, this is not going to be near as hard as the first part of chapter 9 was. So we're going to start in verse 24. So would you stand with me as we receive the word of the Lord this morning? Paul says, even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place of where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. And what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. Even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Let's pray. God, I thank you. God, we celebrate the incredibly great news that is contained in your word this morning. God, I pray that it would come alive to us. Holy Spirit, would you just bring revelation through this, God. Let us see you for who you are. Let us receive your truth, God, deep down into our hearts that we may be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In studying this text that we just read, the thing that just kept jumping out at me was how Paul is just tearing down some serious idolatry here. 
There are three forms of idolatry that he attacks in these verses that we're going to look at. But before we do that, we really need to, fi- to define what I mean when I say idolatry. Webster's Dictionary actually has two definitions for it. One is the worship of a physical object as God. And the other is immoderate attachment or devotion to something. That second definition there is the one Paul is really attacking. But in the context of what he's doing, we're going to define idolatry even more specifically. And that is this. It'll be up here on the screen. Putting confidence and hope in anything other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In the first part of this text, Paul quoted the Old Testament prophet Hosea. The second half of Hosea chapter 2 is subtitled, if you have one of the Bibles that has subtitles throughout the chapters, it should say, Restoration of Israel. In the first half of that chapter, God is condemning Israel for their unfaithfulness. But then in the second half, he he says that in spite of that unfaithfulness, that he is going to allure her, make a covenant with her, and bring her into a time of peace and prosperity. Now, the first century Jews, part of whom Paul is writing this letter to Romans, um, letter 2, always viewed that prophecy of Hosea as being about the physical nation of Israel. And a lot of people today still hold that same view, even some Christians. But Hosea's prophecy was not about the physical nation of Israel as much as it was about the spiritual nation of Israel, which Paul defines earlier in Romans. It's whom Paul refers to as the elect. And we know that this is the case because of the part of that prophecy that Paul is quoting here in Romans 9. It was the last verse in Hosea chapter 2 that says, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Gentiles, those who were not Israelites. In the Old Testament, of course, the Israelites were known as God's people. Those who were not Israelites and those who did not observe the law of Moses were known as not God's people. And so here, Paul is tearing down the idolatry of nationality. Putting confidence in one's nationality as what makes them right with and acceptable to God. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that this is something that we can even get caught up in, in our own nationality, even here in the United States. I mean, there are some who actually think that they are Christians and they're going to get into heaven just because they are Americans. That's not going to cut it. And I mentioned last week how it's so easy for us to kind of equate or at least blend the gospel, and the American dream. When in reality, those two things are different. They are not the same. And when you mix those two things together, the American dream and the gospel, what comes out is the prosperity gospel, which is a disgusting false doctrine, to put it mildly. 
It's also easy for us to think that we are building God's kingdom by voting for a particular political party. Now, get involved in politics. I encourage you to do that. More Christians, more kingdom-minded Christians should do that. Get involved, but don't get distracted. Get involved, but don't put your hope in a political outcome. That's not where our hope lies. And right now we are entering that time of the season where this political stuff is getting really ramped up right now. And it's going to be real easy for some in the church to think their hope lies in the outcome of an election. But I want to encourage you and warn you not to do that. Do not get so caught up in the political theater that is going on that you get your eyes off of Jesus. Patriotism is a good thing, but we have to be careful not to make it an idol or to confuse the kingdom of the United States with the kingdom of God. And Paul goes even further in addressing the national idolatry of the Israelites. There are some today who will define God's people as all of Israel and some Gentiles included also. They would define God's people as the religious Jews and the Christians together being included in God's people. They believe that the physical nation of Israel is still included and that Jesus came to make a way for the Gentiles to be included in what the Israelites already had. But Paul addresses that next in verse 27. Let's look at that again. He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. He's saying, no, it's not about the whole nation at all. The only Israelites who are going to be included are the ones who have been saved through their faith in Jesus Christ. God's people are not defined as the nation of Israel, and some Gentiles too. It is defined as some from Israel and some from every nation. It's made up of all those whose confidence and hope is in nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. It can't be anything else. Look, if there is a way to be made right with God, to be part of the family of God apart from Jesus, then he died for nothing. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have a sin sickness that Jesus is the only cure for. Your nationality will not cure the disease of sin. Let's move on. Verse 29 is pretty interesting. It says, And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Now Paul is quoting Isaiah 1.9. In the first chapter of Isaiah, the prophet is telling the people what is going to happen if they continue in their rebellion. And I want us to look at that real quick. Isaiah chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen here, starting in verse 7. He says, Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields 
Strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. The Hebrew word there used for few survivors is also translated as remnant. He's saying that unless the Lord preserves a remnant of Israel, everyone will be destroyed. Because that's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were completely wiped off the face of the earth by fire from heaven. This is part of the elect that Paul refers to. Now this verse doesn't apply just to Israel here. It applies to us too. And there are two things that these verses here speak to. The sovereign mercy of God and our complete inability to put our confidence in anything else. Like we talked about two weeks ago, we all absolutely deserve to be destroyed for our sin and rebellion against God. We deserve eternal punishment for belittling God's great name. None of us deserve salvation. And had it not been for God's grace and mercy being extended to us, none of us would be saved because There is no power within ourselves to save ourselves. We can't do anything in order to gain salvation apart from God interjecting and and doing it for us. We don't come to saving faith in Jesus because we somehow figured it out on our own. You see, the Bible says that we come into this world spiritually dead. With ears that are deaf to God's call. And eyes that are absolutely blind to his truth. Not sick, not on life support, but absolutely dead. And if that's true, which I'm pretty sure God's word is, then how in the world can we come to salvation by anything other than God's sovereign choosing? We can't. God has to be the one to open our ears to hear. He has to be the one to open our eyes to see. We can only come to life by God calling us to life. Now, I've heard some people say that that makes it sound as if God forces himself on people. Like I said last time, God doesn't have to force himself on anyone. All he has to do is reveal himself. And when he reveals himself and people truly see him for who he is, Things change. But look, think about this. Even if he did, even if we call it, yeah, God forced himself on us, that actually would be a really, really good thing. And if you can't see that that would be a really good thing, then you don't understand what it means to be lost. Let's say you're swimming out in the middle of a big, deep lake, And all of a sudden, your muscles seize up, and you can't move anything. You're just paralyzed out there in the middle of the water. You are completely helpless and in danger of drowning. You know that if someone doesn't come and pull you up out of that water, you're a goner. I don't know about you, but if I'm in that situation, 
I would pretty much beg for someone to come and force themselves on me to get me out of that water. If someone were to come along and throw a life preserver out beside me and then offer me the choice whether I wanted to grab the life preserver or sink and drown, I'm going to be pretty distraught because I can't move in order to get the life preserver. I'm helpless. I need someone to come do for me what I'm completely incapable of doing myself. Our spiritual condition and our eternity is in a much, much dire situation than that, apart from God's salvation. It's arrogance to think that we can do anything on our own to gain or achieve salvation. You see, our sin nature is so bad that it doesn't have the capacity to choose between light and dark, good and evil, truth and deception. We are so eat up with sin and wickedness, we can't help but pursue dark, love evil, and believe lies. That is what our sin nature naturally craves, and we have no power within ourselves to change that. Unless the Lord would have preserved us, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. And here's something else about that. In the first half of chapter 9, we looked at the difficult truth that points out that God, in his sovereign choice, may not do that with some people. And one of the reasons that's so hard to accept for, is because for some, it seems as though God is rejecting someone. The truth is, by not saving a sinner, God is allowing them to have the very thing that they want. He's given them exactly what they want. God will never reject or turn away anyone who calls out to him. Never. He says, ask and you will be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door shall be open to you. He will, rene- he will never reject anyone who truly desires him. But he may leave some to the desires of their own wicked hearts. He may just let them have exactly what they want, what they've always wanted. Absolutely nothing to do with him. For those of us who are saved, if God hadn't reached down and pulled us from the miry clay and replaced our sinful nature with his divine nature, we would have gotten exactly what our wicked hearts wanted. We would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Praise God that he changed that. Let's read on. Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. And when he says pursue righteousness, he's talking about trying to gain God's favor through righteous acts. Um, Trying to appease God with good behavior and obedience to the law. And he's saying that even though Israel 
tried and tried to do that. And even though their intentions were good, they absolutely fell short. But the Gentiles, those Gentiles who are part of God's elect, God's people, even though they didn't even have the law, and so they didn't try to earn God's favor through obedience and good behavior, they got it. How come those who tried and tried real hard didn't get it, but those who didn't even try at all, they got it? I mean, that doesn't seem very fair at all. Paul answers that, verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Faith in Jesus, not good works, is what makes you part of God's family. And where does that faith come from? Ephesians 2.8. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. God gives us the faith to believe. He has to. Because we are incapable of conjuring up faith on our own or coming to it ourselves. And so here, Paul is tearing down the idolatry of performance. Putting confidence and hope in our good behavior and our religious activity. Believing that somehow it's going to tilt God's scales in our favor. Believing that that somehow gains us something more than we already have in Jesus. And then finally, verse 33, just as it is written, well, end of verse 32, it says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Who's Jesus referring to when he's saying the stumbling stone? He's talking about Jesus, and he's quoting Isaiah eight fourteen. Now, Peter talks about this very same thing in his first letter. And he confirms everything that Paul has been saying here in Romans 9. And I want us to look at what Peter says because the similarities are just uncanny. It's almost as if Peter has copied Paul's letter. But That's not what happened, of course. It just affirms that the same spirit was working through and guiding both men. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in in verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now watch this. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Greek word used for called there does not mean that he invited you into it. The word literally means to name. And so a more accurate accurate translation would be, he summoned you by name out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now Jesus gave us a physical picture of this, this very thing, when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus summoned Lazarus from the grave, from death to life. He didn't give Lazarus a choice whether or not he wanted to stay dead or come back to the world of the living. Lazarus couldn't have made a choice because he was what? Dead. Yes. And so he summoned him by name. And I'll tell you what, the power contained in God's call, in God's summons, is absolutely unavoidable. When he summoned the universe into existence, it didn't have any choice but to come into being. In Isaiah fifty-five eleven, he says, My word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. His call is so powerful and inescapable that some say that's why Jesus called Lazarus by name. Because if he had just said, come forth, every corpse in that cemetery would have come walking out of their graves. And that may even be why scripture said that God calls us by name for salvation. Because if he just gave a general come alive, everybody on earth would be saved. And so with this, what's being torn down is the idolatry of achievement. Thinking that we can somehow take credit for any part of our salvation. We cannot say, I'm saved because I walked down an aisle. Or because I said the sinner's prayer. Or because I asked Jesus into my heart. Or because I finally decided that it was truth. No, you were saved because of what God did. Not because of what you did. All those things that you did were a response, a reaction to what he did. You didn't achieve anything. But you were given everything. God did for you what you could have never done for yourself. That's grace. This text in 1 Peter confirms that too. Peter says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why does God do salvation like this? Well, the rest of the verse. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Not the excellencies of Israel or the United States. Not the excellencies of good performance. Not the excellencies of my achievement. But the excellencies of him. Of an all-powerful, sovereign, merciful God. His excellencies. The excellencies of the gospel. That even though he chose us, we still would not be right without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He chose us to be with him, and then he went to the cross to make us worthy to be with him, to qualify us to be able to be with him. 
Now, all these truths here should prevent us from putting confidence in any other thing than God's grace. But if we truly believe this, it should also do something else. It should give us the confidence that God can do absolutely anything through us. Last week, I talked about living our lives with abandon for the sake of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom. And one thing I hope you all understand in that is that that does not mean that we need to all go sell all of our possessions and go live in a foreign country on the mission field. That might mean that for some. God may very well cause some of you to do that very thing. But there are many ways to live with abandon for the kingdom. You see, if God is sovereign and he is working every detail of your life out to accomplish his purpose, then that means that right where you are is where he has placed you. He has placed you right where you are so that you can advance the kingdom where? Right there. Right there where you are. What I have discovered is that one of the main reasons I think so few Christians today live with the kingdom mindset is not necessarily because they are too caught up in the world, but it's because they don't think that they can really do great things for the kingdom. They don't have the confidence to think that they can The confidence to step out into what God may be leading them to. They think along the lines of of something like this. And and I'm sure that's probably some of you in here. I know it is because I've talked to some of you. You think, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not a professional ministry person or whatever. But it all boils down to thinking that you really just aren't qualified to impact The kingdom. If that's you, then the Lord really wants you to let this sink in, what I'm about to say next. The almighty, all-powerful creator of the universe specifically chose you. He called you by name. He made you right with him through Jesus' shed blood. Now, that right there is all the qualification you need. That's it. Because of that right there, you're qualified. God isn't really looking for confident people if their confidence is in anything but Him. God is not impressed with seminary degrees, ministry experience, positions or titles, or anything that exalts man to any degree. He is impressed with the humility that says, I'm qualified by nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. All my confidence, all my hope are in him. And the things God will do through an attitude like that are absolutely mind-blowing. Paul speaks directly to this, what I just said. And we're not going to close by looking at it, but I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
if that is you, that you think you're just not filling the blank enough to do great things for God, for Him to use you in any way, I want you to listen to this as if it's being spoken directly to you. 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You think you're not good enough or qualified enough? Good. God doesn't want your confidence in anything else. Your confidence is in the blood of Jesus Christ. You can do it. That's all he wants. I really wish all of you knew me before I knew Jesus. And those who did know me back then, I really appreciate them because they always keep me in check and bring me back to earth and remind me that that ain't you. That's God. I mean, you're talking about God choosing the foolish things of the world and the base things of the world. And so those that know me, all I can say is, that's God. Because that boy right there has got nothing else. (laughs) Nothing else. That's God. You don't need anything else but the blood of Jesus. You are empowered. You are qualified. Go to it. Let's pray. God, what an incredible thing. What a humbling thing to hear today through your word. God, what... A simple thing, but yet, even though it's simple, it's still too big for our carnal carnal minds to grasp. So, Holy Spirit, again, I'm asking that you make this real to us. That we would stop looking for anything else for us to put our confidence or our hope in. And we would know that, yes, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough, for your power is perfected in our weakness. And so, Lord, may we be a people who boast in our weakness so that your strength and your power 
may be evident and glorified in us. Lord, I pray for those right now who have been doubting, who have been lacking confidence and just thinking so down on themselves. Lord, would you just make it so real to them right now that you have given them everything they need for whatever it is you have called them to. Lord, that you have empowered them to do great things for the kingdom right there where they are. Lord, they don't have to hold back for anything. Lord, I pray there be somebody in here today that for the first time you have revealed yourself to and they are seeing their sinful condition for what it truly is apart from you and how desperately sick they are and in need of salvation. Lord, I pray that you, by your mercy and your grace, would open their eyes to see, their ears to hear, and you would change them for eternity. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to have your way in the remainder of this time, whatever that looks like, whatever you want to do, do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.